Binging on movies. Binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. Here, Here comes, comes the binge. binge. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the third episode of the Binge Movie Podcast, where we review movies and are just generally chatty Cathy's about it. Uh, this is Jason Leroy. My name is Rebecca Olarte. And today we're covering five movies. We're going to look at Spotlight, Brooklyn, I Smile Back, Love, and Trembo. Let's start off with Spotlight. The true story of how the Boston Globe uncovered the massive scandal of child molestation and cover-up within the local Catholic archdiocese, shaking the entire Catholic Church to its core. Spotlight. This is the tip line. You think he's got something? I want to keep digging. We need to focus on the institution. Show me that it came from the top down. We've got two stories here. A story about degenerate clergy and a story about a bunch of lawyers turning child abuse into a cottage industry. Which story do you want us to write? Because we're writing one. So, child molestation. Um, I think a lot of people hear that and then they're, they're just instantly like, nope, not, mm. not going to happen. Not going to watch that. Mm-hmm. Is, this, uh, is this something that sensitive audiences should stay away from? or Are a lot of people like that? Because I'm the opposite. I'm just like, oh, okay. Oh, like, did I see? I'm like, oh, sign me up. You, I'm you're... running toward content about child molestation just Google as a general search rule. Yeah, no, alert. I so many alerts for it <laughs> uh yeah no so this is this movie spotlight and room were sort of the two big movies at the toronto film festival this year that everyone loved and agreed upon and when i got back and was telling people about them both what i kept getting was like oh no i'm not watching either of those those sound horrifying uh, a lot of you know parents like oh no i can't watch things oh. where children are being endangered i can't you know and, you know, I have flashbacks, you know, being little, watching, like, I knew I couldn't show my mom anything where, like, a kid uh, had anything bad happen to them because she would just, like, freak out. Right. So, but, no, Spotlight, it absolutely does not have anything happening on camera. This is very much just a really sophisticated, smart journalism procedural that is about exposing these abuses that were going on at the Boston Archdiocese, but does not actually have any of it happening on screen. So don't worry, sensitive audiences. <laughs> no trigger warning necessary. I feel like even in the trailer, though, you can kind of tell that it's uh, most of it seems to take place like in the in the office in the yeah. of the Boston Globe. Um, and and looking at the trailer, this cast, all star cast. Um, do you think it's it's hard to to single out any particular? Uh, standout actor well in this movie it is it is such an incredible cast uh and yet mark ruffalo has really emerged as probably the most likely nominee for it uh for best supporting actor he has just sort of a uh, a liveliness and a passion and an energy to his performance mm-hmm. that uh that is just really captivating to watch and you know you're really rooting for him and you're really emotionally connecting with him and uh, and not just like you know, ogling him the way that I normally do. <laughs> Oof, I was, okay. you know, my mind and body were engaged <laughs> by, by Mark Ruffalo's performance in this film. How about Rachel McAdams? She's She's gone from Nicholas Sparks' um, ingenue to the, her performance in True Detective was pretty gritty this year. Um, mm-hmm. And her performance in Southpaw as well. So she's kind of, she's definitely turned a corner. Um, how is she in this? Oh, True Detective. Ani. Ani Bezzarides, I believe That's her it. name was. Mm-hmm. One of the great names. We can always enjoy that name. It's a good one. I feel like all anyone wants her to do is just be blonde again, <laughs> but she just won't do it. She's she like, refuses. absolutely not. She's like, that was a character, uh, the character Regina George, obviously. 
And, uh, and ever since then, she's like, oh, no, I'm a brunette actress. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> I am not here to play. I'm here to be very serious and very somber. Uh, and uh, in Spotlight, she's very, it's a very sort of low-key performance. Uh, it's not, uh, you, you, she remind me of the girls that I used to work with at the Daily Kent Stater in terms of, like, being that kind of journalist girl. Uh, I'm sounding like Aaron Sorkin right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what is that? Uh, I mean, I, I only, I mean, women, women. Like, I'm women I used to work with at the Daily Kent Stater. She just reminded me of the sort of the single-minded pursuit that you see with, with, a person of any gender uh, who is just just a dyed-in-the-wool journalist who is just really passionate about pursuing sources and getting to the bottom of things. She really sold that. She doesn't make it glamorous. She doesn't make it about her. It's very much a good, solid ensemble performance. Doesn't really stick out as much as Mark Ruffalo's does. Uh, it's not showy, but she's there. She's solid. Uh, it's another, you know, non-blonde performance from Rachel McAdams. Uh, in that same vein, this whole like when you when you look at the trailer, the the movie looks like it. They just kind of went through a TJ Maxx or like a men's warehouse and just emptied it out for the costumes. Everything <laughs> looks incredibly. They look like people who are committed to their careers mm. and not at all um, <laughs> particularly f- glamorous or or fashionable. <laughs> so the performances, I assume, are really the standout here it's not it's not a beautiful movie it's yeah. not Guillermo del Toro no one is being worn by their clothes uh <laughs> no well it's something that I'm really intrigued about is this whole idea of like because it takes place in 2001 um mm. and I'm so intrigued by this question of like how are we going to remember the aughts like yeah. fashion wise Oof. yeah I know there's like it's there's still like so recent look it's so tricky because, like, I feel like even in the 90s, we knew how we were going to remember how yeah. we all dressed in the 90s, even though looking back, like, none of us realized our jeans looked that bad. <laughs> but there were certain trends, like, you know, flannel, and then, you know, kind of the rise of that kind of more, like, neon kind of piping look from the late 90s. Yeah. And and I don't know about the odds, except for, like, maybe once we get to, like, mid-aughts, like, hipster takeover with, like, skinny jeans and asymmetrical right. haircuts and that kind of shit. But the but early yeah, the aughts, early are kind wasteland, of a wasteland, like, this weird, gross sequel to the 90s. Is uh, What about the the, Je- the Jennifer Aniston haircut, the Rachel? Is that a 90s that's or a 90s that thing. That's definitely a 90s, a 90s thing. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the Rachel had changed significantly. I think she just had, like, a blowout by the time that it got to the odds. Oh, it things was, had changed. Yeah, yeah. She was just, like, full glam blowout. She had already, like, you know, married Brad Pitt by the odds. So things had changed in Annie Land, which I'm calling her life for some reason. <laughs> not to be confused with Annie Bezzarides. Completely what, different. No. What not, a name. What a name. I mean, I will say my favorite part of that season of True Detective was that one, like, knife practice scene she had. Oh, she. Oh, that was intense. That was hot as fuck. That was an amazing scene. That was pretty intense. When yeah. she was like talking to her sister. Yeah, that was like the whole season was worth it just for that one bit. So another star of this movie, which I feel like of the eastern of the eastern cities, other than New York, this one definitely Boston gets a lot of mm. airtime. Um, the Departed, Mr. Griver, Boondock Saints. Does this movie make Boston look good? At least. Oh man, it was no, it does not. Uh, the movie is like a scathing indictment of Boston corruption and of its institutions enabling one another to overlook terrible injustices, sort of partnership between the church and law enforcement and elected officials, um, you know, which it's sort of like journalism porn because it's like, well, who will stand up to all these institutions? The journalist will. That's Mm -hmm. who. 
Uh, so yeah, it does not make Boston look good. Uh, Black Mass was also at Toronto this year. Another story about like how just horrible Boston is. Whitey, the Whitey Bulger story. The Whitey Bulger story. Mm-hmm. So no, uh, no favors are done to the cinematic reputation of Boston by a spotlight. So between the two of those, yeah, you say Boston just looks like. It's like a it's like a it's like a lawless nightmare factory kind of, <laughs> and where like everyone's complicit in how terrible it is, but everyone's also really like gruff and defensive about how great the city is. So you know, it's it's it's, it's certainly it's like everyone's a Wahlberg about it, you know. Oh no! Everyone's what you thinking better than us? We already you know? have so many of them. Yeah, I know. Everyone's a Wahlberg or an Affleck, and they're all just guns out. Speaking of lawless nightmare factories, yeah. Um, the director, Tom McCarthy, uh, he played the pivotal journalist character in the fifth season of The Wire. Mm-hmm. Um, does this movie get journalism right? You know, I would say that for the most part it does. It's definitely a movie that feels uh, by, for, and about uh, journalists. Uh, it, the, the, and, and journalists really get off on these kinds of depictions. Like whenever, I think in, in any industry, when in you're like, industry. you know, you're like, oh, this movie gets it all wrong. Um, like, when I was in college, everyone loved the paper, which was Ron mm-hmm. Howard's journalism movie from the '90s with like Glenn Close and I believe Michael Keaton. Maybe was he in the yeah, paper? Yeah, he was in the paper. So here he is again in Spotlight. So he's uh, apparently, if you want a good journalism movie, call Keaton, and he brings the gravitas, he brings the credibility, he nails it. And what's your review of this movie? Spotlight is bingeable, and not only is it bingeable, it is my pick of the week and not only is it my pick of the week this week we have a tie for pick of the week between spotlight and our next film which is brooklyn spotlight is out now and is rated r for some language including sexual reference in 1950s ireland and new york young ailish lacy has to choose between two men and two countries i have a life halfway across the sea your life here could be just as good if you go back i have no but I want you to stay here with me. Home is home. So when you first described this movie to me, I asked if it was a Nicholas Sparks adaptation, which Mm -hmm. you adamantly denied. Oh, yeah. Uh, How is this better than Nicholas Sparks? Well, the thing about Brooklyn is it really is so hard to describe to someone like me or you where, like, there's so many triggers when you're like, oh, well, it's a romance about a girl choosing between two boys. Mm-hmm. And it's like, God, oh, that sounds terrible. Like, <laughs> please never make me watch that. <clears throat> but the thing about Brooklyn is it has this quality that's reminiscent of the sophisticated romantic dramas that sort of old Sioux system Hollywood used to crank out with some frequency, uh, where it, it was somehow it did not ever get super sappy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it always felt kind of, you know, operatic. Like, it made you feel things. And I feel like, you know, one of the main aims of cinema is to authentically make you feel feelings sure. in a way that does not feel kind of hackneyed or ham-fisted or over-the-top, in a way that's like a tasteful, elegant way to make you feel something authentic. And Brooklyn absolutely succeeds uh, on that count. Uh, it, it does happen to be about a love triangle of sorts, but first and foremost, it's about this incredible uh, heroine uh, who is uh, portrayed so with such just masterful control by um, Saoirse Ronan. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a story about the immigrant experience in America in the mid-20th century. Uh, it's a story about coming of age and rites of passage. 
it's so deeply felt and richly emotional and uh and it's it's a tearjerker uh it is i you I cried I did not cry because I don't um it's an I, eye condition it is and I actually today I saw a commercial that was like for some product that makes you cry and I'm like <gasps> what is it possible but it was like I think it's for people with like dry eye syndrome <laughs> and they're like and apparently they're people who like they can cry, but their eyes don't produce tears, I guess. That's oh. what it, yeah, and I don't think that's the case for me. No, like, this is more of like a black heart syndrome. This is more of a black heart syndrome. This is more of like a profound emotional block situation <laughs> I have going on here. Giant wall yeah. syndrome. Yeah, that one. So I did not cry at Brooklyn, but I felt, you know, lump in my throat here and there. And when I walked out of the press screening, one of the publicists was just like full red face sobbing. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's a really, really, but in, you know, it, but it's a gorgeous film. It's a gorgeous film. It's not like a Nicholas Sparks is just the absolute worst. And I can't get through like 30 seconds of Nicholas Sparks movie without face palming. So then you're saying you did not cry at the notebook. Uh, no, no, I didn't cry at the notebook. I mean, I definitely, I mean, obviously that's a huge fucking wallop at the end of that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, I definitely got choked up a little during that. I mean, it's, it's, difficult not to but I like I like I don't cry it inside out you know I, I didn't cry okay. it you know um I don't even I, I got a little choked up and up you know I'm just now I'm just like free associating <laughs> I'm like when does everyone like shame me the most for the fact that I cannot cry like Sophie's ever. choice no please wow <laughs> it's like too many kids in the world anyway it's <laughs> my position on that okay so yeah. moving on <laughs> uh so in it, this um when you're using Irish actors, uh, you know, you have to go through that whole, how do you pronounce her name? Right. Yeah. So this one is Sersha. Sersha. Sersha Ronan. Sersha Ronan. She was in Atonement, right? She won an she, Academy Award for that? She was nominated for an Oscar. For nominated. That. Yeah. For very Oscar. young age. I believe she was like 11 or 12 when she was nominated for an Oscar for Atonement. But then she was in, she was in The Lovely Bones. Yeah. She was in um, a Grand Budapest Hotel. She was. And The Host. Uh-huh. And, um, but uh, those are pretty, those weren't, I mean, other than uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, they weren't that well received. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, she had that kind of really auspicious debut in Atonement, similar to Anna Paquin and the piano. Which we already had, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, we talked about the bad luck curse of the uh, child. <laughs> yes, of, of the child actor uh, who gets too much praise too early. And, uh, and Saoirse Ronan seemed like she might be falling down that that kind of uh, uh, pit because The Host and Lovely Bones were both fairly anticipated literary adaptations uh, from Alice Siebold's and Stephanie Meyer's books, respectively. Obviously, the Alice Siebold one was much bigger because it was a Peter Jackson adaptation, mm-hmm. and but it was a disappointment. But she's been plugging away, and she had uh, Hannah, which is a film that I think everyone liked, where she oh, right. played like the child assassin. That was really... Yeah, that was really something else. That was a real. Was really I think that's the kind of that's a that's a cult movie. I think that's mm-hmm. a movie that really just you know caught on my word of mouth. Did not have a big promotional yep. push. It's hard to market, uh, but it's so weird uh, that I think people really uh, have you know have clung to it. And then she had Grand Budapest Hotel, a small part. I think that probably did a lot for her uh, since the movie was so well received, and mm-hmm. she just had this one. You know, it's kind of an adult role of sorts. You know, she has like a romantic part in that movie, so right. and that kind of paves the way for what she's doing in Brooklyn, where she is just this full sort of romantic, dramatic lead, and uh, and she she is the tone of the film. The reason the film works as well as it does is because she nails it with her performance. 
Um, so she plays an Irish immigrant in this movie, and um, there's there's sort of a, a subplot of uh, tensions between the Irish and Italians here mm. in, in Brooklyn. Um, and oh, what a simpler time. Mm. White on white prejudice. Uh, it's just, quaint. Just makes you long for the old days. Um, and that was the worst that we had to deal with in Brooklyn. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, not that there isn't still white on white prejudice in Brooklyn. Let's not kid ourselves. But um, would, how do you think this movie would be received differently if if it wasn't uh, if the immigrants were from, let's say, were like Mexican immigrants, or even now with you know immigration issues uh, from the Middle East? Like, how do you think that would mm-hmm. flavor the story? And yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting that it does seem like it's only immigrants from the white countries uh, that get these sort of lavish uh, romantic dramas done about them. Like Mm -hmm. if it was a girl from Mexico, it'd be like Maria full of grace and she'd be a drug mule. (laughs) Exactly. It's not like you're looking back and saying, you know, it's a bunch of white people saying, Oh, that could be my grandmother or right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, So I think that, you know, it is, it is emblematic in its way of uh, problems much bigger than just film in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, white America's comfort with white immigrants and their extreme discomfort with non-white <laughs> immigrants. Uh, like, I don't, you, I've never heard anyone on Fox News complaining about, like, too many immigrants from Ireland. No. Uh, although the Fox News of the 1950s absolutely would have. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yes. Dirty, dirty Irish. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. So I think that, you know, the film is old-fashioned. Uh, it's very uh, sort of traditional. It's very tasteful. And, uh, and part of that is in it's telling a story that, you know, no audiences will have any trouble watching. Uh, and I think that'll do, that could do a lot for it in terms of its reach and its appeal. Uh, it has a really, really broad appeal and uh, it's really beautifully done. But I do think that, uh, yeah, if it had been about, uh, you know, it's a story about immigration that won't offend anybody and that's hard right. to come by. So this one is one of your picks of the week. Does it that is. does that make the assumption that should make the assumption then that it is a binge worthy? It is completely binge worthy. Thumbs up to Brooklyn. Brooklyn and Spotlight are two of the best films of the year. Excellent. Brooklyn is out now and is rated PG thirteen for a scene of sexuality and brief strong language. Now we'll take a look at I Smile Back. Lainey Brooks does bad things. Married with kids, she takes the drugs she wants, sleeps with the men she wants, disappears when she wants. Now, with the destruction of her family looming and temptation everywhere, Lainey makes one last desperate attempt at redemption. How much do you love me? (gasps) Oh, good. Oh, good, oh, good, oh, good. Promise you'll never leave me. Nobody tells you that it's terrifying to love something so much. Why did you stop taking your meds? They were making me fat. That's bullshit. It's true. So you'd rather be insane? So... Sarah Silverman's in this, but that did not sound very funny. No, it is not a comedy. It is one of the biggest downers you will ever watch in your entire life. Wow. Yeah, uh, I saw it at uh, in Toronto, and I saw it at a, a public screening. So it wasn't just like industry people; it was just you know uh, film lovers who bought tickets to see it. And there were several old couples around me that just stormed out. Oh, really? <laughs> I think they thought they were signing up for like some just Sarah Ruckus. Silverman quip fest. And that is not what they got from I Smile Back because, man, is this a dark, fucked up movie. That sounds like fun. Um, so it's not <laughs> funny at all. It is not funny at all. Uh, you know, the only humor you could find in it is just that Sarah Silverman is so inherently uh, her her you know her line readings and her delivery are so dry and really just cut to 
the truth, the honesty of whatever it is she's saying. And that can help but seem kind of dryly funny sometimes. But no, there's no gags in the movie. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't tell any jokes. She doesn't say uh, anything about bleaching. No, no yeah. asshole bleaching okay. talk. She doesn't tell any great Holocaust jokes. Uh, that does not happen in this movie. No, this is very much uh, a, a, a very somber, very savage uh, character study about depression and addiction. So when you say that she she sort of like cuts to the truth in her lines, it, it sounds like it's a really good performance. It's not, you know, she's a she's a comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not overacted. It's not. No, she's so perfect in this movie. And it's not her first time doing dramatic. She was in a film called Take This Waltz that was directed by the actress Sarah Pauly. Oh, okay. uh, that oh. She, she started opposite Michelle Williams okay. and Seth Rogen. Uh, and uh, it was a They're drama. a married couple? Yeah. Michelle okay. Williams and Seth Rogen play a married couple, and she has an affair, and, you know, it's it's the most, like, emotionally painful movie oh, wow. uh, that I can remember seeing in a long time, until this one. <laughs> uh, no, that one actually was a lot more painful to watch really? than, than I Smile Back is. Um, I, I think there's just more of a distance, you know, watching this, unless you've personally gone through the struggles of having your family destroyed by your addiction and depression then i think <laughs> don't watch this movie trigger warning trigger warning <laughs> uh but uh but yeah no so she's done dra- uh, she's done drama before uh, she's also in matches of sex um oh, right she's a recording role on that show but this is just a uh, such, a, such a superb brave honest fearless bracing performance and a lot of those words actors don't like hearing applied to their work. She's like, oh, it's bold, it's fearless, because, you know, that's really code for like, oh, they get naked and they cry, uh, <laughs> or that kind of thing. And those things do happen. Okay. But uh, but it's 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 just a no bullshit performance. Uh, she does, you don't, you won't catch her acting. I'm doing finger quotes right now. Uh, <laughs> that's something that, you know, that's like actor speak. You know, like, oh, like, don't ever, you don't want to catch me acting. You just want to see me being, I'm being the truth. Uh, get lost in the performance. Yeah, she is very much in, she's very much aligned with the truth of every moment that she's on screen in this movie. So speaking of hard to watch, yeah. uh, there's a long history of comedians that take on dramatic roles. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Robin Williams and Jim Carrey. Um Tracy Jordan mm-hmm. um, and Monique winning an Oscar for Brushes. Yes. Um, do you think that's like a, a just a plea that you get sort of frustrated with being seen as a comedian? Do you think it's um, an effort to be taken seriously? Yeah. Is, is it a, is it a desire to win awards? I think that you know. Well, <laughs> first of all, I have to say that the other day I was watching Billy on the Street and yes. uh, he had Anna Kendrick on there. And, oh, I saw that uh, one. And he was like, "Oh, so you know, you were and you were nominated for an Oscar." And she's like, "I was." He's like, "Who'd you lose to?" And she's like, "Monique." Yeah, <laughs> she got the apostrophe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, he gave her the apostrophe, and just like just the awkwardness that hung in the air yeah. between them after she said Monique, and we just remember that like for the rest of her life, Anna Kendrick will have to say, "I lost to Monique." <laughs> Not but that Monique didn't precious. deserve it. Monique I mean, fully, on. fully deserved the Oscar for that movie. Uh, you know, I think that every, um, no one in the entertainment industry wants to be pegged as any one kind of one trick pony or mm-hmm. only gone to or looked to for one kind of performance or one kind of music or one kind of character. Everyone wants to be viewed as being versatile and they want to not just do the same thing over and over again. They want to try new challenges, different jobs. And I think that Sarah Silverman is, uh, she's proven herself uh, several times now. And I feel like 
I did get the sense that with this one, she just like told her representation, like find the darkest, saddest, most fucked up movie in the world and get it for me. A book it. And now she's done it and it is harrowing to watch. Wow. And uh, and hopefully now any kind of sense that she has of needing to continue to prove herself as a dramatic actress, she can let go of because goddamn, she's so great in this movie. But it's you, you don't want to see her go through this again. It's too much. So in addition to Sarah, Sarah Silverman, this movie uh, also stars uh, Josh Charles. Mm-hmm. And which everything is coming up Josh Charles recently. He was in Freeheld. Uh, he just had a, a, a very successful run on The Good Wife. Yeah. Um, Inside Amy Schumer. Inside Amy Schumer. He's just, he has a face that you love, doesn't he? He does. He does. Since Threesome. Since Threesome. Since I've threesome. been ride or die for Josh Charles. He was in like a, uh, no? Good Will Hunting? No. He was in uh, Dead Poets Society. That's it. Yeah, I believe so. And he even had a bit part in Hairspray, and John Waters' original version of Hairspray, Wait. as one of the kids at the Baltimore uh, Dance Club. Really? Yeah. I didn't yeah, the know Corny that. Collins show. He's one of the Corny Collins dancers. Uh, wow. Like, he's in the opening montage, like, ogling the girl with falsies or something. Huh. He, like, says something mean and racist to poor Ricky Lake. <laughs> I think he's there when they interview her, and they rate her character flaws. How could I forget that? I know. Um, but he's just so... He's precious, and he's wonderful in this movie. Uh, he's actually gotten a little bit of supporting actor buzz uh, because he, it's its like the sympathetic turn. You know, mm-hmm. he's like the audience surrogate because the average person in the audience is not going to relate to like the depths of extreme self-destruction that Sarah Silverman goes through in this movie. Uh, they will relate to Josh Charles because, you know, mm-hmm. it's more common to have a loved one who battles depression and addiction that is to be that person. Right. So I think the average uh, customer is the average customer for this movie. The average <laughs> audience member is going to see Josh Charles and really connect with him. Uh, and he it's it's a beautiful performance from him. So what is your rating of this movie? You know, this movie, all we've talked about are the good things. Uh, and I mean, I did say how hard it is to watch. It, it's really kind of basic script wise. And it, it would be, if not for Sarah Silverman's performance, it would be a very maudlin, very manipulative movie. So without her, this would actually be a send it back. Oh, wow. Uh, but she is so good. Such a must-see performance from her in this movie that it brings it up to moderation. So binge in moderation. Consume in moderation. Consume in moderation. I Smell Back is out now both in theaters and on iTunes and is rated R for strong sexual content, substance abuse, disturbing behavior, and okay. language. Let's talk about love. Murphy is an American living in Paris who enters a highly sexual and emotionally charged relationship with the unstable Electra. Unaware of the effect it will have on their relationship, they invite their pretty neighbor into their bed. I would love to know that we can fall in love again and again and again. Okay, so let me get this straight. Mm. It's a movie with actual, real, live graphic sex, yes. like porn-level graphic sex. Yes. And it's in 3D. It is in 3D, correct. That's correct. Yes, it is It is a an adult drama uh, about the history of a sexual relationship, and it's done in 3D. What's so hard to understand about that? Well, what, okay, so so I've seen Jurassic Park in 3D. I've seen Gravity in 3D. I, I feel like I knew what I was going to be getting, you know, dinosaur fights. Um, what? <laughs> what's it? Th- should I even ask? What's the 3D part of this movie? Uh, you know, it, it just like those movies. It is deployed as a stunt uh, to make certain things look as if they are 
shooting out at the audience. And that that word choice is intentional, yes. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Three times. Three times you get that. Uh, But there's one... uh, Well, actually, no. There's three three cum shots in the movie. Only one of them is, like, full-on, like camera positioned over the penis head as it literally shoots at the camera that only happens once so it's really kind of tasteful in that sense it could have had more than one it's tasteful jason it's tastefully done tasteful it's a tasteful come shot um so it's it's not a joke is it like a shock value you know it's it's you know so gaspar noe is the director and he like Lars von Trier, is kind of like an enfant terrible of European cinema mm-hmm. who really likes to push the fucking envelope as far as it'll go and while also maintaining enough of a sense of artistry and composition and photography and music and, and you know, sort of all the different pieces, all the tools in, this, in the cinematic toolkit, uh, they utilize gorgeously um, while also showing these things that to our eyes, just seem very uh, gratuitous, beyond gratuitous. It's charting new courts, charting new boundaries in how gratuitous something can be. Uh, so, is it porn then, or is it acting? Well, it, it it really kind of introduces. It's not the you know this is not the first time there's been a non pornographic film that had real sex in it. It mm-hmm. certainly has the most real sex and the most graphically shot real sex of any um, non-pornographic film ever. And it's certainly, you know, it's, it, I guess when it comes to, you know, deciding what is porn and what isn't, it almost comes down to how it's financed and how it's marketed. <laughs> like, is it being financed by like Vivid Films or, you know, in this case, you know, this is like a European art film that happens to, you know, just be all about boning. Uh, it's it's very somber. The tone of the movie is actually not uh, erotic. It has kind of some semi-hot moments, but... Uh, it's really about this man who is looking back on the history of his relationship with this woman who he kind of lost whenever they had that threesome you mentioned in the in the summary. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up sort of having an affair with the woman that he met to the threesome. And then he gets her pregnant. And then he loses the woman who he was with in the first place and has to become a father. And so he's sort of reflecting back on basically every time they ever boned. Um, going in like reverse chronological order so that it gets to that very poignant level where, you know, you're seeing them in their happier times and, and their first, you know, blush of fucking, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, <laughs> romance, but you know, I guess, uh, but yeah, there's, it's, it's all about sort of Gaspar Noe reclaiming sex as something that in cinema, especially in American cinema, we have really shut out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's something where, you know, in the 90s, we really had, I mean, it's, it hasn't always been that way in American cinema. So it's not like, oh, we're Puritans. I mean, that doesn't have something to do with what's going on now. But, you know, like in the 70s, American cinema was lousy with sex, 80s, mm-hmm. tons of sex. 90s kind of reached a pinnacle was sort of like the erotic thriller age of basic right. instinct. Um, but and then Showgirls just killed it dead. Uh, that's, it's like conventional wisdom is that like Showgirls was like the last straw. That was like the last like gasping sigh of erotic cinema in America because the movie was such a colossal failure as much as we love it now. And um, and that was like, nope, audiences don't want that. And, you know, now here we are and, you know, we're only, what, 10 years removed from Nipplegate with Janet Jackson. Oh, and, you geez. know, so we're still another country that, you know, is not super comfortable with nudity or sex and as much as we'll all get together and watch it on like Game of Thrones and be like, yes. Um, <laughs> I think that it's the kind of thing that in theaters, people feel very uncomfortable going out to theaters and watching that kind of thing. 
Um, and they'd rather do it in the privacy of their own home because obviously porn consumption has not in at in any way gone down. No, um, it's only increased. So it's not like Americans don't want to see this kind of content. Is they have it, they're very compartmentalized. We, I should say, we're very compartmentalized about how we want to engage sexually explicit content, and we don't like to confuse our movies with our porn. Right. And so I think that's what makes the love seem so uh, revolutionary or challenging uh, to our mindset is like, oh, well, but no, those things don't go together. Uh, you know, sex in movies is supposed to be a lie where right. the woman Absolutely. has a, a blanket pulled over her breasts throughout coitus. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is definitely, <laughs> this is the very opposite end of the spectrum from that. I feel like when talking about the history of film, there is a time when you could see, would say, like, you know, a French art house film was almost code for, yeah. you know, a super sec- hypersexual movie. Totally. Um, and then that sort of kind of faded as well. And, yeah. and now it's sort of back. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that was sort of in the 50s and 60s, uh, there were, I mean, there's a film by Ingmar Bergman called Summers with Monica that was famously recut as like an exploitation film because it has some nudity in it. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was literally recut and released as like a skin flick in the United States, which, you know, just couldn't be like a fun and then, you know, in its in its native, you know, country it was, you know, received in which the spirit it was, you know, in which it was intended as this right. kind of somber character story. So and then, you know, just because it had like a titty in it, you know, <laughs> in the United States it was like, oops, skin flick time and then like, you know, cued like the sleazy saxophone music. Right. So um but yeah, that did used to be code like, oh, it's an art film, European art film. Like that was definitely like Wink. growing up, you know, if you're growing up and you want to see new in movies and this is come to think of it this is not a thing anymore because mm-hmm. like our generation is the last one that would have thought like this i certainly did i fully own like looking to you know out and movies from beyond america's borders for male nudity in particular because that's something that is was much more uh, uh acceptable and common in european films than it was in american films right. but now it's just the internet so this is one of those things where like for the rest of my life i'll be like realizing all the ways that my life and story is different from those who were born like five years after me because of just you know the internet so but uh but you know this is there is this you know gaspar noe and lars von trier are continuing to bring that kind of i guess envelope pushing back to european cinema when it had kind of it had been lost like european cinema was not synonymous with graphic content um, for, you know, like the nineties and, Mm-mm. and the aughts, no. but, uh, but yeah, but then Von Trier, recent Von Trier, you know, uh, like <laughs> Nymphomaniac, right. um, you know, his, and, uh, Antichrist. Oh, yep. Lord, that's Antichrist. another one. Jeez. Um, and then, you know, Gaspar Noe going back to really the very beginning with him and he's much more of kind of like a shock jock auteur. Yeah. So speaking of Gaspar Noe, um, I saw Irreversible when it came out mm. and, um, I feel like that was maybe it's because I was younger, but I I I was you know I kind of knew what it was going to be about, and I but I went into it anyway. Um, now I feel like I'm less likely to go try try to see something that shocks me mm. uh, in that way. Um, but this movie seems to have a lot of similarities, at least from what I've seen. There were kind of those long tracking shots, like yeah. POV shots through right. um, like gritty Parisian clubs. There's this mm-hmm. chronological order, um, chronological, sort of reverse yeah. chronological order going yeah. on. Um, what do you think are the differences between Irreversible uh, and shocking in a different yeah, way and, yeah. and love? I mean, fortunately, love does not have uh, any real violence in it. Oh, uh, so, you know, that's something that, I mean, obviously, Irreversible has sort of the most, 
notorious rape scene in the history of film because mm-hmm. um, it's what like 10 minutes long mm-hmm. real time stationary camera rape scene um, and you know at that point in the story you've already watched a man have his head uh, beaten Ma- yeah, into just... hamburger uh, so that was you know and it, you know that movie had a similar kind of emotional pull I would say sim- the similarities is that they both have the same kind of emotional pull through telling this reverse chronological story that ends with everything in tatters and begins with like sweet lovers. Right. Um, Innocence. Yeah. Sweet lovers enjoying each other in the purity of their love. So those are, uh, those are really the only similarities. The, the graphicness of, uh, of love is on such another level uh, with all the real sex that's going on in it. Uh, because I mean, like literally, this is a movie where there's just like penetration constantly. Wow! <laughs> like nonstop penetration, beginning to end. Uh, I would say the other main difference between Love and Irreversible, or I guess we should be saying Irreversible, is <laughs> that that was a really beautifully acted film by two of the sort of the finest uh, French actors who were at the time were a couple. Uh, Vincent, they were? Cas- yeah, Vincent Cassel and Monica Bellucci Did not know that. were a couple at the time, and uh, and and Love, however has this main dude uh as you mentioned it's about an american in paris uh or an american in parisians as i think the whole movie (laughs) should be called and uh the guy they found to play this american is such a fucking dummy really he is dumb dumb dummy like he he has dumb guy face he has dumb guy voice he has like three emotional uh stances he can take uh he is so appallingly bad and the the dialogue that Noah has written for him in english uh it doesn't do him any favors it's basically just him being like shit oh shit over and over again like uh. it feels like a porn level performance it feels like they found a porn actor and tried to like you know make a whore into a housewife um <laughs> but it did not work and the thing that makes no sense to me is that there is a porn actor who was brought into a legitimate film james dean mm-hmm. was brought into canyons. the canyons and he was good in that movie. He was actually like good. Like maybe it was just, you know, comparing him to Lohan. But well, like he was he held his own. He was an interesting character in that film. Uh so I don't know if they offered him and he didn't want it or if they just didn't want to go in that direction. But so they found this uh unknown. His name is like Carl Glusman, I think. And uh and he also was at Toronto this year in uh, Stonewall. He is also in Stonewall. Really? So he's firing on all cylinders this year, this <laughs> Glusman. And uh, you know, and he performs where it counts for this movie uh but otherwise he is just so you don't you don't feel anything for him like you're supposed to be emotionally invested in this man but he just plays him so opaquely with such a lack of inner life and just such kind of like a cavemanish kind of quality to him that it, you know it's not i mean in these two french actresses uh who he is paired with automatically convey so much more inner life mm-hmm. uh than he does and uh and he's just 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 fucking useless i mean he is could not be more of a non-presence uh in the film for a movie where he is naked and banging for you know probably 80 percent of his screen time uh you feel like you know like nothing about this character so that said what is, what is your review of this movie you know uh i'm gonna go with I guess I'll go with consume in moderation with this one just because okay. it, it is so beautifully done and it is so rare to see uh, a non-pornographic film that engages sex so bluntly. Uh, 
you know, it's been surprising seeing all the super positive reviews that have been coming out about this. I feel like fairly recently, when it screened at Cannes, it was kind of a mixed response. Now suddenly it's positive, and now suddenly it's bringing out sort of like the the bragger in every film critic because it's like they're like, oh well, you know, it gets certain things about sex that you know are just true, and it's like, <laughs> okay, all right, film critics, like we all get it. You all want everyone to know that you have sex sometimes. Good for you. <laughs> and this is this is something that I hate about film critics, where like suddenly everyone becomes like professor whatever about whatever the subject matter yeah. is of any movie they're watching. They're like suddenly like, oh, well, you know, the thing you need to know about this is, and obviously the thing they forgot was, and and that this it, that's true of of sex. Uh, the the know it allness of film critics is also being brought out about sex, but in a gross way because most film critics you don't want to picture having sex. No. And so this is why reading reviews of love can be very uncomfortable. Uh, so with that said, I'm going to give it consumer moderation, uh, even though the lead actor drags it perilously close to send it back. Love is out now and is not rated, but come on. I mean, really. Which brings us to the last movie of the show, Trembo. In 1947, Dalton Trembo was Hollywood's top screenwriter until he and other artists were jailed and blacklisted for their political beliefs. Trembo recounts how Dalton used words and wit to win two Academy Awards and expose the absurdity and injustice under the blacklist. The blacklist is alive and well, and so is the black market. We should all be prepared to go to prison. I don't think you're willing to lose all of this just to do the right thing. You don't end something like this by giving them what they have no right to ask. Trembo's played by Brian Cranston. I love Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't? Isn't everybody just on the Brian Cranston train? We have been on that train for about six years now. The seven. train's coming. The train's come into the station. It has. It has. It's actually been the station for for maybe for maybe too long. Uh, so this is his first leading role since Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, should I be as excited about it as I am? No. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Okay, set my expectations no, accordingly. I'm, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say no. Uh, this is definitely not the. Given the magnitude of his accomplishment as, uh, you know, as Walter White on Breaking Bad across those what six incredible seasons that it had, uh, this is a letdown uh, for how to, for how to follow it up, and you know, and it's hard to say what wouldn't have been a letdown um, for how to follow up That's that kind fair. of thing. Um, you know, when you have six seasons of a TV show to develop a character and to show different facets of performance, then it's always going to be a letdown. Trumbo has its heart in the right place, but it's just unremarkable as a film. And he's certainly competent in the characterization, but it's it's not Walter White 2.0. Uh, it's 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 a it's it feels like a TV movie. How about the supporting cast? We have Louis C.K. Mm-hmm. We have. Uh... Helen Mirren? Helen Mirren, John Goodman, John Goodman. Elle Fanning, Diane Lane. Uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable ensemble cast uh, who I can only imagine sign on because maybe they also love Brian Cranston <laughs> and because it's the kind of... Hollywood loves making movies about itself. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this is always true. And in particular, since Hollywood is by and large pretty liberal... This is sort of like a, a, a liberal history lesson mm-hmm. um, about, you know, a really kind of unfathomable uh, thing that was going on regularly not so long ago during, you know, the Red Scare and the kind of communist witch hunt in the McCarthy era uh, and the way that 
that it you know concretely impacted people in Hollywood where you know if you were you know accused of being a communist or if you identified as one then you were blacklisted and only Scientology was available to (laughs) sort of harbor celebrities from that sort of the government's grasp if only if only so you know so this is this is a, a look backward at a kind of a dark moment in Hollywood history where conservative politics gone uh, gone haywire had claimed a number of great talents and taken them down, whether they did name names or didn't name names. Uh, you were sort of damn if you do and damn if you didn't uh, in terms of the impact on your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed this movie, it looks like it's colorized, sort of like a, a black and white movie mm. would have been colorized. It gives it sort of like a... Um, almost like a dreamy, almost like a holiday feel. Hmm. Did, did you just, did you that resonate with you at all? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I will, I will admit that I was very drunk uh, when I saw Trumbo. <laughs> uh, I saw this also at Toronto, and um, I was coming from. I think it was the party for About Ray. Yeah, it was the About Ray party, which is about about Ray's movie with Susan Sarandon and Naomi Watts and Elle Fanning about a trans teen boy Mm -hmm. and his uh, sort of journey to acceptance within his family. And uh, it's a great movie that unfortunately seems to have been shelved indefinitely by the Weinstein Company. Oh, really? Um, But uh, and so I had been at this party getting super (laughs) champagne wasted. um, And Elle Fanning was at that party because she was in About Ray. And then I was like, I gotta go see Trumbo. And (laughs) so I I, like hauled ass across town to go to this other screening of Trumbo and I got there like barely in time. I think it was raining. Um, and then Elle Fanning was there in a whole new dress. Uh, so I was like, you go, you just get it. She was gorgeous. Uh, so I was drunk and I don't know if that I noticed that the colors were any one particular thing, but Fair it, enough. it does have, you know, it's a period film. Mm-hmm. It definitely brings that kind of, it suggests the era that it's from. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel particularly modern. So, uh, so I think that that could very much be uh, right on. So so back to Elle Fanning yeah. um, and the rest of the ensemble cast. Are there any anybody that you think will see an award? No, this is just not an awards movie. Uh, it, it, it is for all those great actors. No one really gets to do that much. I would say that I had the most fun watching Helen Mirren. She plays um, a legendary gossip columnist named Hedda Hopper, mm-hmm. who sort of just called the shots in a major way um, in old Hollywood. And, uh, and Helen Mirren just has such a ball being such a bitch in this part. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's great seeing her. And she was, out of all the people that I saw in Toronto this year, she was the one that when she walked out onto the stage, I literally did like the gay gasp. I was like, <gasps> like I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't think she was going to be there. I did not think she was going to be there. And I went to the after party and she was not the after party. So oh, I no. was, I was spared some kind of, you know, inevitable humiliation that I would have brought upon myself by trying to talk to her at that party. Um, so no, uh, you know, everyone's fine, uh, mm-hmm. in their parts. Brian Cranston is fine, but this is just an unremarkable movie that it feels like it should have been an HBO movie, which is not surprisingly the lineage of its director, Jay Roach, uh, who mm-hmm. directed Game Change and Recount, both similarly politically themed films that were done for HBO and were great movies by HBO standards, um, had great performances by any standard especially Julianne Moore, Sarah Palin, and Game Change. Of course. Our girl. Uh, but this is this is not remarkable enough to be getting a theatrical run, and I have to imagine it's just because of the star power of its cast. So what do you think would get someone blacklisted now? It seems like at this point, uh, it kind of takes, 
like active confirmed child molestation. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's <laughs> yeah. very seventh heaven. It's very, yeah, it has to be like, that's the only thing that gets you like fully blacklisted. Or if you're a woman um, aging over 40. Sure. Uh, we'll definitely do it every time. Uh, yeah, and there are things that can take a person out of commission. Uh, like, you know, Winona Ryder had a really hard time being hired for a while after uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the thievery. thievery. Um, That's so, a strange. Do you think that would have happened if that, that would shoot at the same results if that happened now? I mean, like, the only, only comparison I have is, like, Lindsay, Lindsay Lohan, Lohan right? and she also doesn't work. Uh, yeah, but you she know. sort of did. I feel like it took multiple repeated offenses. Yeah, for her to get... and I think Winona Ryder had a much more uh, impressive career behind her at yeah. the time of she had two Oscar nominations and was a household name and spent a lot of time as an A-list star, face of the 90s. Maybe uh, she just found that point where she was getting older and she committed a crime. Right. It was a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm. Uh, of... That make actresses not get hired. Yeah. And I think there's also a double standard, of course, that, you know, I think it's for an actress to get picked up for a crime it ends up having a much more uh diminishing impact on their hireability than it does for sure. for a male actor uh so but i think that yeah so i think there are different rules for men and women i think the only thing that categorically gets you yanked off the screen is is confirmed child molestation yeah definitely again confirmed confirmed it has to be confirmed uh even i mean like rape not enough no nope. um, alleged rape alleged, ah! yeah <laughs> make me laugh uh, you know, domestic abuse, nope. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's certainly no political belief, you know, in terms of, of you know, the times of the McCarthyism and, and, you know, communism and socialism being enough, not the case. <laughs> Although I should no. say that any any Republican in Hollywood would tell you that they feel blacklisted. Sure. We've um, heard you, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. <laughs> We've heard you. Which is why he, you know, is sort of an industry unto himself because, you know, he might not be hired by anyone <laughs> like else. My own Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> Shut up, old man. Um, what about what about religious belief? What about Scientology? Well, clearly that doesn't seem to have any impact either. <laughs> uh, you know, like a lot of the biggest stars in the world are Scientologists and, and, you know, from box office names like Tom Cruise to sort of young, uh, awesome, exciting actors like Elizabeth Moss. Uh, so yeah it seems to have no impact i think that if anything it it would make them not want to work just because they don't want to go out and do press behind their movies and then be asked about scientology uh but it does not seem to have any cooling effect on them actually being hired uh and i think that fans who are in the know it just cools it for us a little bit because we're like oh why you're so cool like why are you a scientologist uh, but no, that's certainly not. I mean, Scientology is such a huge part of Hollywood. I mean, you see way more Scientology centers than churches in sure. LA. It's sort of like the official religion of Hollywood in a lot of ways. So it absolutely does not have any kind of blacklisting effect unless you, well, now we'll see what happens with Leah Remini. Right. Now that Leah Remini has, has become so incredibly outspoken about this issue and I is, you know, making all the media rounds right now for her new book. Mm-hmm. Um, not that she was exactly like an A-list actress before. King of Queens was fantastic. <laughs> I, will, I will say I, I, I enjoy Lee Remini. Uh, I saw her on Watch What Happens Live a number of times, and she is she's a, she's just a spitball. She's just, a, just full of energy, that one. <laughs> um, and uh, so I enjoy her, but, you know, so we'll see. I think there can be retribution for speaking out, but I don't know that any major studio heads are Scientologists, you know what I mean? The people right. who actually are making the decisions, the, the, the executives – are still the ones who had the power to greenlight a movie right. or to interfere with casting. So, uh, so yeah, no, I don't think there's any modern equivalent of uh, of being a communist or a socialist during the McCarthy era in terms of blacklisting you in Hollywood. Jason, 
What's your review of Trumbo? You know, guys, I think I actually have to send this one back. Send it back. It's just it's just really unremarkable. And for a film about one of the great screenwriters of old Hollywood, it is so uncinematic. Mm. It is so by the numbers. Uh, it's just really uninspired. And uh, so I'm going to send it back and ask for a better script and better direction to do justice to all these amazing actors and this incredible story that deserves to be told better. Trembo is out now and is rated R for language, including some sexual references. Well, guys, that's it. Thanks for listening to our third episode of the Binge Wee podcast. Uh, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes and rate and review us if you'd be so kind. Like the Binge on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jason underscore Leroy and Rebecca is at fight underscore balance. So on behalf of the two of us, thank you for listening. Binging on movies. Binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. There, there goes, goes the binge.